Thanks for pressing play. If you love the serendipitous magic that can only occur in a real, unedited conversation, you're in the right place. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, and we are the Real Dialogue Oddcast for business leaders, entrepreneurs, and category designers with a different mind. And thanks to listeners like you, out of 4 million podcasts, this one is in the top 0.5%. So again, thanks for pressing play. Wired Magazine says our guest today is the man who makes founders cry. He's also well-known as the quote-unquote CEO whisperer. Jerry Colonna is back. And we go big and we go deep on very powerful and personal questions like we always do with Jerry. How do we build legendary companies that perform at super high levels? How do we create radical belonging at work? How do we create better humans who become better leaders? What should we do about the decline in empathy? And how we can apply Zen noble truths to our lives and to our work. This is a radically different dialogue with one of the most radically different CEO coaches in history. Jerry's got his uh, new book is out. I got an advanced copy of it. It's stunning. It's called Reunion, Leadership and the Longing to Belong. If you think radical, intimate conversations about uh, careers are a powerful and important thing, you're going to love everything about this conversation with Jerry. Now, to thrive today, legendary marketing leaders and creators are using content, courses, and community, what you might think of as creative capital, to design and dominate their categories, to attract, acquire legendary customers, and to drive breakthroughs in word of mouth. That's why you need a mighty network. You see, on a mighty network, you can bring together your customers, your community, your memberships, your online courses, webinars, uh, digital events, all in one place, all under your brand on a platform that you control. Plus, when you're ready, you can run your mighty network on your very own branded mobile app. As a matter of fact, at Category Pirates, we just launched the Category Design Academy, teaching people to, surprise, surprise, become category designers and we use Mighty Networks for our program. So if you want to design and dominate your category and mobilize your community and drive breakthroughs and growth through word of mouth, check out MightyNetworks.com. That's MightyNetworks.com. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey-ho, let's go. Well, Jerry, it sure is great to see you again, brother. How are you? I'm I'm really well, thank you. It's great to see you too. I feel more zen just looking at you and, and hearing that your dulcet tones. Mm-hmm. And my dulcet tones match your dulcet tones. That's the question. Well, I think you're generally, I would imagine you're a calmer person than me. So tone, tone of voice aside, uh, you're probably a more comforting presence than... I might be for some, <laughs> although I don't know. I've heard, it's interesting. I have gotten notes from, from listeners who say that they get, they get used to the sound of your voice. I'm sure as a podcaster, you hear that too. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it, it always, uh, surprises me the degree to which that 
has an impact on people. But I've come to accept it and enjoy it. So, yeah. Well, and you don't play a character on the internet like so many others do, right? I'm sure you've been, have ever guessed it on one of the, I mean, I, I'll, I'll never forget it. <laughs> are we going to, are we going to diss? <laughs> oh, fuck. Let's diss the assholes all day long. And actually there's some news that just came out. I'd be curious to get your reaction to, but we were sort of in the green room before the podcast and you're just having a normal conversation like this. And then the host hits record and starts off and goes, <laughs> welcome to the bar. And you're like, the fuck are you doing? You just turned into a carnival barking maniac. It's not how you talk. That's funny. There's, I was at a uh, talk in Denver one time and uh, Brad Feld and I were doing the talk and I was uh, standing online waiting for like some lemonade or something like that. And I just kidding around. I, I, I leaned into the fellow in front of me and I said, I hear this guy, Jerry Colonna, will, his voice will put you to sleep. So he turns around and he sees my name tag and ah, and he says, my goodness, you sound just like him. And I said, I should hope so. I'm the same guy. He goes, no, but no, but you're the same person. It's like, yeah, I'm the same person <laughs> online and offline, but to your point. It's always a funny experience, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And the, the cool part about it, I, I didn't know this in the beginning, of course, uh, I've known it for quite some time now, but if you're yourself in the, the digital world, that is to say, you're not a cartoon character. And of course, there's some things we don't share and, you know, we, but sure. you're generally yourself. You're not sort of acting in any way that the reality is if people do listen, they do end up knowing you. And it is a strange thing when we meet because they're starting sort of relationship wise, if you will, on second or third base, and you're just getting to know them and you got to catch up because they actually, you know, if I listen to your podcast, I consume your work, right? I get a pretty good sense of who Jerry is. And it feels like we've had a couple beers together, whether we have or not. Right. 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 It's, it, it's a little unnerving. Uh, I'll be honest with you when, when someone walks up and says, Hey, I read your book and, uh, they know more about my past and um and i know nothing about them so and then it, t- it takes a beat for them to realize that i actually don't know them so but but it's uh i enjoy it i enjoy yeah. being known in that way well it's interesting you know i mean uh i like you of course know some some like seriously famous people and it's always interesting to see who handles you know, who handles it well and who doesn't and how they handle it. And one of my all-time favorites is Bill Walton, the of course, the NBA legend. Mm-hmm. And one of the challenges that you and I don't have that Bill has is when Bill walks into the room, you're pretty sure Bill walked in the room because he's fucking seven feet tall. And so even if you don't know who he is, you know, somebody just walked in the room and he might be a basketball player. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And he, you know, everybody talks to Bill like they know Bill. Right. Because if you if you consume Bill, you kind of do know Bill. I mean, the, the personal Bill that I know, and I don't know him super well, but well enough to, you know, I've spent a little bit of time together. And I'll tell you, it's it's always wonderful to get an, an email from Bill yeah. Walton in your inbox. It's a th- fun day always. It's a thrill. It yeah. is a thrill. And he's been very, very kind and so forth. Anyway. He is incredible with people because they come up to him and they act, they act like his long lost sister or brother. And he just, mm. 
he acts the same way and accepts them and, and is kind with them and takes selfies with them and laughs with them. And yeah, he's, he's real, he's really wonderful at it. There's a something quite endearing, I think about that. I mean, there, you know, it can be unnerving, but I think that there's something revealing about the nature of the human heart, which is that I think we're drawn to connection. And um, sometimes, you know, what we're talking about in, in a way is a projection and uh, who that other person is, and I'm wishing to connect to that person. But, um, you know, when we last spoke, we were talking about my book, Reboot, and of course, now we're talking about legendary a new book. book. I just have it right over here, actually, on the other side of the studio. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, you make the point. You know, one of the things I talk about in this new book I've got coming out is this phenomenon uh, that I really zeroed in on, which is this notion that your story is my story. And, you know, very briefly, in the months that followed the release of that book, that legendary book, one of the things that happened repeatedly and surprisingly was uh, strangers coming up to me and saying to me in some form or another, your story is my story. You know, I wrote about a few of those instances in this new book, but um, that phenomena, I mean, whether it's a 85-year-old white woman in Denver coming up to me at a talk, you know, telling me how she grew up in the Dust Bowl, um, and I, of course, grew up in Brooklyn, the furthest thing you could get, furthest place you can get from the Dust Bowl. There's some dust in Brooklyn, but it's a different kind, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or, or a black woman, an immigrant from Zimbabwe in Dublin, Ireland, or a CEO of a Fortune 100 company, or a retired two-star general um, going for a walk with me in Madrid. The phenomena of people coming up to me and, and using that awareness of me as an empathetic bridge so that they could cross that and connect to me and share with me their story uh, was profoundly moving. How so, Jerry? Well, we all live in bubbles, right? We live in a kind of bubble of who we are and how we, you know, we, we, we look at the world through the backside of our eyeballs. We see the world only through our experience. But then when you encounter someone who, because you've endeavored to be fully present and authentic and real, when you encounter someone who responds to that authentic presence by showing up themselves, by dropping in and telling you about their own lives, all of a sudden, distance and time and things that would normally create division kind of disappear. 
And you start to see this sort of shared experience that we're all kind of bags of flesh walking around trying to make sense of a really difficult world and respond to suffering and trying to make the world just a little bit better for ourselves. Um, and it's really easy to forget that. In fact, I would argue that we're socialized to not remember that. And something magical happens when you can look into the other person's experience and empathetically see, wait a minute, they're not so different from me after all. Yes, no question. Now, I've read a bunch lately, Jerry, and seen research to back it up that suggests that we are at, if not an all-time low in empathy in America, certainly um, pretty much there. Um, what's your, you know, you mentioned empathy and you mentioned suffering. And so could you kind of maybe pop the hood on your thinking about those two things? Sure. And, and you know, I'll acknowledge that every, that my perspective is deeply informed by my Buddhist training and my uh, studies as a Buddhist. And I agree. I think our ability to, to be empathetic is at an all-time low. And yet, what I have been taught is that empathy and its kind of kissing cousin of compassion are, to use a word that one of my teachers would like, primordial. <laughs> it's endemic to who we are. And that's not to deny our tendency towards tribalism, but it is to recognize the specialness of the human species. And that um, one of the attributes of the human species is the capacity to empathetically experience another person's suffering. And if we can then respond to that suffering with compassion, there is an opportunity to create a better experience for everybody. I know that sounded a little vague for me, but, but I hope that responded to your question. Absolutely. And so why, why do you think we're at this low point of empathy? And then maybe what do you think, if anything, can we do? Well, I think that um, there have been many forces at play for decades. And I think that, you know, it's always useful to, if you think back to the Watergate era, who was it that in, in was it Carl Bernstein or Bob Woodward who wrote something like Follow the Money? If you look at a phenomena and you say, who benefits? Who benefits from the lack of empathy? I think it's uh, those of us who hold power benefit when I fail to understand what's driving you 
and what your experience of suffering is. And uh, sometimes it's a wish to maintain the status quo, and sometimes it's a wish to gain more power. But I think that the folks who benefit, and, and, and I'm not alleging that they're in cahoots with one another. I think it's a, it's a phenomena that happens that um, our political leaders, our business leaders, fall into this trap of, in order to maintain the status quo or positions of power, they maintain unconsciously sometimes or consciously other times the the inability for me to really reach across and understand what your experience is. And the result is an increase in suffering, needlessly so. Yes. And, you know, you've been called one of the greatest uh, coaches, CEO coaches of all time and uh, all sorts of other wonderful laudatory things. And so why the hell is, you know, one of the greatest CEO coaches of all time having this conversation? This doesn't sound like to some – a business conversation. Aren't we going to talk about uh, EBITDA and margin expansion and category potential and, and, and the like? Well, I suppose so. Um, but as you may recall from my first book, Reboot, one of the things that I believe to be true is that better humans make better leaders. And, you know, I often joke, well, that's freaking obvious. Of course they are. And then, of course, I then turn around and respond, well, if it's so obvious, why do we have such terrible leadership? And I think we have terrible leadership because this process of being a better human is really, really hard. Okay. And one of the things that happened in the last few years, as in my experience, the world became more and more divided and our experience became more and more painful as a result was that simply endeavoring to be a better human isn't enough. Because if the definition of better human stops at my own personal development, and I think that those of us who are fortunate enough to have uh, capacity and agency in the world, I think we have a responsibility to try to make the world a little bit better, the external world a little bit better. And so part of what my stance is right now is that, and it, and it might be controversial, but the fact that I believe that business leaders in particular are absent from the dialogue and the discussion that is, at least here in the United States, tearing us apart. And that dialogue is manifesting in, you know, you're down in Santa Cruz, a woman last week, a shop owner, a mother of nine, 66-year-old mother getting shot in the head because she flew 
a gay pride flag outside of her own shop and refused to take it down. I mean, what is going on? And, you know, as a business leader, our lives touch thousands and thousands of people, whether it's our employees, our employees' families. What is going on? I ask myself that a lot, too. And the answer I get, by the way, in my head, it's not the answer that I think. It's the answer that pops into my head. This is going to sound however it's going to sound. But when I heard that news, when I hear yeah. the news every other day of the latest um, mass killing, right. racial killing, Asian hate, black hate, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, what's happening to uh, uh, LGBTQ plus folks. The answer that pops in my head is, well, we're just not done killing each other yet. You know, Christopher, there's in Buddhism where when the Buddha sat and 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 moved towards enlightenment, the story goes that he woke up to the four noble truths. And the first noble truth is a truth that I think you can relate to, and that is that the world is filled with suffering. That, you know, we're speaking on a day just a few days after three black folks were shot by a 20-year-old man who had racist drawings, I think, on his gun. That kind of suffering is a part and parcel of our life right now. And the second noble truth, if you just lean into it from, from a shallow perspective, which is that that which we do to alleviate suffering increases suffering. If you just stop there, you'd have every reason in the world to be nihilistic, to just give up. But the noble truths don't stop there. The third noble truth is that there is a cessation to suffering. And the fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Path. And, you know, you asked me about why I'm writing about empathy, why I'm writing about division, why I'm writing about the hopefulness, if you will, of reunion, which is the title of the new book. It's because I am committed to doing that fourth noble truth, that Eightfold Path. And one way to think about it is there are two responses to nihilism or two responses to the second noble truth. The first is to give the fuck up and to build a wall around yourself and your family and, and not care. And the second is despite how hard it is to care. And I choose the latter. And those really, I mean, this may sound simplistic to some, but those really are the choices. And there's variants of gray and everything, of course, but really those are that, the choices. That's right. 
And when horrible suffering, unconsolable suffering happens to us, and it happens to all of us, we're all going to lose parents or have lost parents. Or best friends. We're all going to lose loved ones. Some of us will lose a child. And some of us will experience horrible illness. And some of us will stare evil in the eye. Yes. So it's coming for all of us. You know, having spent a lot of time um, grappling with some of this, particularly of late, um, I've heard many others say, so this is certainly not my idea, but that extraordinary suffering, you know, we had Pastor uh, Yvonne Mwari on from Zimbabwe, the man who started a peaceful rev re a revolution with a Facebook video. <laughs> and he shared with me that, um, you know, these horrible things will either make you, improve you as a person or destroy you as a person, that there's really not much middle ground. Um, is, that, is that what you're communicating? Or, or, or what do you, what's your reaction to that, Jerry? I think it is. I think it is. And, you know, for, for guidance for me, um, as I often do, I turn to my friend Parker Palmer. And Parker is in his mid-80s and is a Quaker and teacher and writer. And many years ago, he coined a term uh, called the tragic gap. And he talks about the gap as the spot between the world as it is and the world as it could be. And what he says, and I think that this is a really important point to make, what he says is that if you give over to the world as it is, you are condemned to corrosive cynicism. But equally important, if you give over to the world as it could be, you run the risk of irrelevant idealism. And so what we're called to, where we're called to stand is in the spot between those two places. And our task as human beings, our task as leaders, our task as those of us who hold power in some capacity or another is to stand in the tragic gap and realize that we have work to do even if we fail, even if we know we're going to fail. Because that's how you live a worthwhile life. And the place where I land, Jerry, is um, not like defeatist, but like embracing. That's the only choice that makes any sense. I mean, otherwise, what, what, it, what am I going to do? I'm going to sit here and just fucking smoke pot and drink alcohol until I explode? I mean, you're either going to make things different or you're not. And for some of us, n n not is not an option. And it's interesting, quite a while back now, we had um, Captain Paul on, uh, Captain Paul Watson, who's co-founder of Greenpeace and Sea Shepherd and now his own thing. 
And he was going on and on and on about the oceans, Jerry. And, and he said to me, in his opinion, we need a 50-year moratorium on sort of mass fishing. And he was sharing some of the data about the ocean and climate change and all this stuff. And it's, if, you, if you get into that, it's overwhelming how horrible all of the data suggests the, the situation we're in. And so I asked him, how, you know, Captain Paul, how do you continue? I just pulled it up. I wanted to read it to you because he stopped me in my tracks with this. He quoted um, Indian actor and activist Russell Means as saying, quote, we are not concerned about the odds and we're not concerned about winning or losing. We're here because it's the right place to be, the right thing to do, and the right time to do it. Don't worry about the future. Focus on the present. What we do in the present will define what the future will be. I couldn't agree with it more. You know, in Reunion, one of the epigraphs for one of the chapters I took from the Talmud, in which Rabbi Tarfun says, it is not yours to complete the work, but neither are you at liberty to ignore the work. Now, just pause and take that in. It is not yours to complete the work, but neither are you at liberty to neglect the work. You asked about sort of the decrease in empathy. And by the way, I don't know that it's universally true. I think there are pockets of extraordinary empathy as demonstrated by the vast number of people who came up to me and said in some form or another, your story is my story, and still say that. But that is the work to do. I mean, I, you know, in Reunion, I write a lot about ancestors, but I also write about descendants. You know, I turned 60 this year. Congratulations. And, you look great. <laughs> I, I, I think a lot about descendants. I think a lot about what will my grandchildren and great-grandchildren say about me and about my time on this planet and what i would like them to say is he tried yeah you're also reminding me of another prior guest an extraordinary guy you probably know him do you know xander rose from the long now foundation i don't they're the I guys don't. um well they do a whole bunch of things but their, their whole purpose is to get people to think long term and they're building that giant clock with uh, Jeff Bezos's money in Texas to the 10,000-year clock. Mm. Anyway, he said something uh, when we were having this kind of discussion. And he said a question that has stayed with me ever since, Jerry. And the question Xander asked was, are we being good ancestors? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that is the right question. You know... I think there's two aspects here. We're talking about the challenges of, you know, what I would call the, the rise of separation, the rise of division, and the exploitation of division as a force. And for guidance, for help, as I was writing Reunion, I turned to my ancestors 
even as imperfect as they were, to imagine what their lives were like so that I might then think differently or think more broadly about the lives of those who say are trying to emigrate to the United States today. And so I want to be an, a descendant whom my ancestors would be proud of. And I want to be an ancestor that my descendants can look up to. Yes, very much so. Very much so. And uh, my friend Gail Moody was on a while ago and she talked about that. She had a real sense for, she's a senior marketing executive now at, at LinkedIn um, and a longtime CMO, incredibly successful, fantastic uh, woman. And she, she talked a lot about ancestors and it was, it was very sort of powerful for me to see how, how much she had an appreciation for those that had come before her and their struggles and the things that they did to enable her to have the magical, incredibly successful life that she's had and sort of this feeling like you're a part of a chain, right? And mm -hmm. I, I don't know, this, this is this feeling like you're part of a chain. I don't know. Is this the, something that comes to us a little bit later in life? <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because I was just thinking that, uh, you know, maybe that's one of the other definitions of elderhood, which is another word I play with. What does it mean to be an elder? You know, um, and I think, you know, I'm, I'm on the back nine of my business career. How do I want to be as an elder? You know, and, and you know, you're, you're right. I'm a business coach. I'm an executive coach. I work with a lot of CEOs. What am I doing talking about these things? Well, you know, at the end of the day, I want to be known as someone who contributed positively to um, the world around him. And I want to encourage my clients, you know, the, the, the best way to confront the helplessness that can overwhelm us in the face of suffering is to take action, is to do something is to take stands, is to not be silent. You know, I want to turn a question around to you. What's a guy like you with a show that's supposed to be about marketing, doing, talking to some of the folks that you just questioned? What's drawn you into those questions? Yeah, it's funny, you know, Follow Your Different certainly started off as a business podcast dialogue conversation and we still do a bunch of that but i think the short simple answer to your question is human beings create build and run businesses and the businesses that i'm interested in are the ones created by human beings that are purpose-built to create a different future that are people who are purposely trying to do something exponential not something incremental and the failures and successes they have along the way. And so for me, it's impossible to, you know, this whole bullshit work-life balance and all that. We've spoken about that before. You know, it's all in, inseparable. Of course, your life is life and there's use cases of you, but it's all life. And so um, I think at the end of the day, sure, you can have a podcast about, you know, 
being a legendary CFO and that's a lot of value in that. And I have a marketing podcast where we don't talk about any of this sort of personal stuff. Um, so there's, you know, there's, there's lots of room for lots of discussions, but I think, um, it seems to me, Jerry, we're living at a time and I've been doing a lot of reading about this lately where people are struggling and you use the word in the book and it's a word I've been really looking forward to asking you about, which is belonging. Mm. Um, and it appears that in a world where uh, religion over time has decreased in, in popularity and maybe in value, I, I'm a religious and spiritual person, so... But uh, clearly that seems to have happened. And faith in institutions, it's been well reported, is at an all-time low here in the United States and in some of the Western world. And uh, uh, a lot of our leaders end up being horribly disappointing. We find out things that we wish weren't true about them. And in some cases, some of our leaders do things that are so horrible, people don't even accept that they did them and just want to pretend it didn't even fucking happen. Right, right. I just saw that right. today. I, um, do you know who Tom Billyu is? Does that name mean anything to you? No. He's, you know, there's all these sort of uh, motivational, personal mm -hmm. development, business bro-y type mm -hmm. guys. And mm -hmm. he's one of those guys. And uh, I, I don't particularly like those guys generally because the, they're sort of, some of them are full-on hustle porn stars. I never thought he was. I didn't love his style, but I thought maybe he was trying to do something more substantive. Anyway, um, it has come out that he's now had to um, settle with the SEC, pay a $6 million fine, and give back $30 million that he stole from investors in an NFT scam. And so it just... It, it, and I know a lot of younger entrepreneurs look up to some of these guys and, and it just seems to happen over and over and over again that we get radically disappointed by somebody or some group or some institution that we put a lot of faith in and, and it, it, it sort of blows up in our face. And so maybe let's go back to the elder thing, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to be a great elder? That's a great question. And I'm, I'm finding my way into that answer uh, through my own lived experience. I think it means trying to see as much of the whole picture as you possibly can. And that means um, understanding that um, we live in this multiple decades long experience and that we can get caught up so much in what's happening in the moment that we fail to to see historical context for what's happening and so we lose that or sometimes it means um that we have a kind of innate wisdom about us i keep thinking about an a story that it might be apocryphal, I, I don't know. It's illustrative nonetheless. The story I've heard is that when young adolescent elephants start to rampage around a village, the folks who do such things will often put an old bull elephant in with the lot. And you have this picture of the bull elephant slapping the youngsters around saying, 
sit up straight, eat your vegetables, wear clean underwear, do your homework, make your bed, right? That there are certain things that matter in the world and that these things that matter are, are, are communicated to us by our elders. Um, and I think that one of the things that we lack, you know, you talked about the decline of, of religion. I think that there has been a concomitant rise in spirituality, but there is a lack of religious elders whom we could trust. And I think there's a lack of business elders whom we can trust. And I think that when we look at the shenanigans and, you know, you were talking about the NFT scandal, the, the, the truth is there are shenanigans every day, aren't there? You know, we're going to, we're going to, um, drive a stock price up or drive a stock price down. We're going to fire people. We're going to hire, you know, we're going to do all these decisions get made and what gets lost is the human cost of all those decisions. And I think a good elder in business grabs people by the ears and says, there are lives at the end of that decision. Be careful. Be thoughtful. Be compassionate. Be empathetic. You may still have to act and you may still have to do the thing that you have to do. But don't ever lose sight of the fact that there's a human being who may be going home to a family and explaining to the family that they just lost their job. And that there's a child in that family who feels that loss. I think that's what it means to be an elder. Hmm. Back to empathy. Back to empathy. Yeah. The other thing I wonder is, is there a commitment um, involved? In other words, do we have to say to ourselves, hey, we're, we're, we're going to be a good person. Mm. And we're not going to be a douchebag. Yes. <laughs> and, and we're also, we're also going to get to a place in life. I'm, 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 I'm remembering a conversation I had recently with a young man in my life in his 30s, an extraordinary uh, young man that I love dearly, uh, who I've become, if you will, an uncle to. And um, an entrepreneur. An elder too. Pardon me? An elder too. Yes. And in this incredible young man's life, his father is a piece of shit. And I don't, I don't think he's spoken to him for, I don't know, maybe 15 years or what have you. And he's a miserable person who did a bunch of miserable, horrible shit and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, it occurred to me uh, at a certain point uh, a while back, Jerry, in our sort of relationship and conversations, that what was hiding in the back of his head, maybe even without him realizing it, became very apparent to me, which was, he was afraid that as it relates to our relationship, that there was going to be some horrible thing that was going to happen. Some skeletons going to come flying out of my closet or I'm going to just fuck off and behave incredibly differently or, or whatever the hell it is. In other words, that, that somehow 
our relationship wasn't on solid footing, that it was in mush and that, of course, something shitty is going to happen. Now, he wasn't thinking that proactively, but you could just over time, I could sense it. And look, I'm not a perfect person. And yes, I have some shit in my closet I'd rather people not know about. And yes, yes, yes. And, you know, I've never committed a crime. And, I, you know, there's, I'm not a horrible person. I've made mistakes and I'm not a, a complete asshole. Um, and I finally said to him, I said, hey, look, I'm not fucking going anywhere. Nothing horrible is going to happen. Nothing's blowing up here. Nothing. It's going to be okay. Look, are we going to have disagreements? Sure. Might we get mad at each other? Sure. Might we have to have some tough conversations? Sure. You might have to do that with me. I might have to do that with you. We're going to have to do it together. But there will be no giant explosion where all of a sudden now, just like with your father, everything is now fucked and you've discovered this person who was somebody very important. Of course, your parents are always your heroes. All of a sudden, you know, part of you dies when you realize that your parent is a raging asshole. I said, that's not going to happen. You might discover some things that you don't like about me and, you know, whatever. But, but that, the sort of the big horrible, if you will, is not going to happen. And there was a, that was a demarcation point in our relationship. And so I, I'm leading to a question, Jerry, which is I've noticed for myself and for others who I respect and admire as they've become elders, as they've gone from Leia and Luke to Obi-Wan, and then if you are successful as Obi-Wan, you earn your Yoda. I have a 92-year-old mm -hmm. father-in-law who has absolutely earned his Yoda, and he's incredible mm -hmm. at it. Um, that sort of pre-committing to not being somebody who's going to blow shit up, who's going to manufacture drama. You're going to see, be the opposite. You're going to be the person... In business, you're going to be the person in your family and your community that tries to bring people together that is a steady hand on the wheel. Um, mm -hmm. And even those of us who are upperty like myself and maybe a little less zen than you are, are mm -hmm. going to be bastions of comfort and stability in the storm. And oh, by the way, when the shit hits the fan, we're going to be at the front, not the back, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. That is to say, to be an elder, you make a commitment to people and you make a commitment to showing up and being responsive and responsible and count honorable in a, in a different way. So I'm just curious what your reaction to all of that is, Jerry. Well, first of all, I think uh, I would agree with all of that and I would build upon it. I think that the one capacity that I would add to the list and the one reassurance I would give to your mentee would be that the, the first commitment that you're making is to know yourself, is to not bullshit yourself. Because when we think about the experience of, you know, when, when our heroes are revealed as having feet of clay, There's two arrows that get shot. The first arrow that creates pain is the mistake that they make. And the second arrow is the unnecessary arrow. And that's the cover-up. That's the shame. That's the denial. And so I think quality that I would add to your list um, 
is an is the is the quality that and when i it, it would go like this and when i fail to live up to your expectations i will take responsibility for that failure i will keep myself open to your pain and to your suffering i will not deny my wrongdoing and in doing so deny your truth you know if you think of your father-in-law the yoda it's not that he has always been there i'm sure there have been times in his life where he hasn't been there and i am sure that there are times when he has failed to live up to his own aspirations, let alone the aspirations of his children. But if we, as a society, are led by elders who stand in that tragic gap, but this time it's a personal tragic gap between who they are right now and who they could be, and are comfortable staying right in that spot, then what they do is they end up modeling something really important, which is, I am going to take responsibility for my failings as an adult, as a leader. See, none of us, you know, the, the corollary to that first noble truth of life is filled with suffering. Corollary to that is, uh, life is not perfect. People make mistakes. Failure is a part of the process. How we are with that determines how we, whether or not we grow and whether or not we suffer. Yes. And so I think that that's another aspect of that elderhood. Um, because imagine whether, whether it's, we're, we're rearing descendants, either blood relatives or not. Imagine being the kind of person that your friend can look up to such that when you make a mistake, you can own it. Yes. Yes. Now, there's another interesting thing about that I'd love to bounce off you, given we're here. So um, it's been said by many. Um, it struck me when my friend and mentor Bix Bixon said it to me as a young man, that the definition of true love is being loved for exactly who you are mm -hmm. and exactly who you're not. And I've had an experience in my life over the last handful of years, Jerry, in this regard, it's been very, very powerful. Uh, a dear friend of mine, a guy that I've always considered from very early on meeting to be a brother from another mother. Uh, several years ago, he and I had a big upset and we blasted apart and we'd spent a ton of time together. We'd done a ton of things together. We'd incorporated a lot of our lives and friends and family, the whole thing. And then it got real stupid and, and, and boom, we blew apart. We never went mental we didn't burn the city down, but it wasn't fun. But we were 
in the domain of not good, we were respectful and didn't go completely insane, if you know what I mean. Mm. Mm. Anyway, um, blah, blah, yada, yada. It's many years later, and uh, we're, we've been back together for quite some time, and tragedy brought us back together, as it, as it often does. And there's an interesting thing that is true today that was never true before, as much as we loved each other and as much fun as we had together and admired and respected each other, which is the aha that I certainly had to acknowledge. And I know I can speak for him on this because we've talked much about this. Without necessarily realizing it, each of us had a little bit of an asterisk on the other. So we loved mm. each other. But mm-hmm. it wasn't 100% for what you are, 100% for you. There was a little bit of, and I really wish, da-da-da. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. and, and, and like a pebble that gets in your shoe on a long hike, you know, a little pebble in your shoe for a few blocks is not a big deal. Over a 10-day hike, it's a visit to the ER. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so, of course, these things build up and, and get worse. Ever since we got back together as a result of this tragedy and have kind of created a new relationship, there's an interesting thing that's happened. We didn't talk about this. It just happened, Jerry, which is uh, I pre-forgive him and I Mm -hmm. (laughs) pre-apologize. And if we have to have a tough chat, we'll have the tough chat. But, Mm -hmm. and so there is a, a surrendering of judging that has taken place. And it's not mm-hmm. to say he's perfect. And it's not to say that I'm perfect. And it's not to say that human beings aren't always going to be judgmental at some level. Of course we are. But we've said all of that doesn't fucking matter. And the degree to which we have something to deal with, we'll deal with it. But we're pre- we pre-apologize and we have pre and it doesn't fucking matter anymore. And so there's a level of freedom and power uh, humanity, self-expression, flow, openness that is truly extraordinary that we, that we, and we thought we had a great relationship before and now we're in this whole other place. And so I'm curious as you sort of think about, you know, expectations and falling short of somebody and having to own your failings and all of that, I, I sort of, I get all of that. And how does that sit inside of or next to, or however you think about it, Jerry, this idea of, I'm just going to love you. There's going to be no asterisks. I pre-apologize. I pre-forgive. And if we have to deal with some stuff that's uncomfortable, we will. But, but we've actually surrendered true, ju- true negative judgment, if you know what I mean. I think you belong to each other. I think that what you've arrived at is, is a level of connection that is safe and that is a deeper expression of love yeah you're a knucklehead but you're my knucklehead you know what i mean it's like you you and 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 i and i suspect that a precondition of that, because I recognize that you said the tragedy is the thing that brought you together. I recognize that, and I suspect that you both did a certain amount of work such that the tragedy 
could work its way into your souls. And you can say to yourself, none of this stuff that we fought about fucking matters. That's right. What matters is this other experience, this other deeper level of connection. And that's, that's knowing to whom you belong. You said, I, I wrote it the second you said it, you belong to each other. And that's exactly how it feels. That is, I, I did not express it that way. You, you put those words to it and that's exactly the experience. That fucker is my fucker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and, you know, we circle back to a question you had before. This, this is, this is, I, in my way, in my thinking, this is a natural outgrowth of you having done your work. This is a natural outgrowth of you having arrived at a place of no longer needing to be right or no longer having to have power over. You've arrived at a place where you're safe in being a, a mess if you need to be a mess in a particular day. I like to imagine a world where more people felt like they belonged. Okay, so there's a couple of big things in here that are going off. I want to yeah. go back to belonging in a sec. Yeah. Is elderhood, at least in some part, a surrendering of uh, control, a surrendering of the need to be right, a surrendering of a power, to use the word explicitly? Yes, uh, uh, but I would, I would parse it just slightly differently. It's, it's a surrendering of the need to have power over because um, there is a deeper sense of power when, when there's power over, which is, which is the capacity to make other people bend to your will. And, uh, and then there's the power that comes from being able to sit as the Buddha sat on the ground, touching the earth, saying, the earth is the witness to my enlightenment. I am immovable. I am unshakable. Even if I acknowledge that I can be a dork and that I can make mistakes, that I am okay. And so I no longer need to be right. I no longer need to demonstrate my power over. I can be shoulder to shoulder with the next person and together we can belong to one another. So yes, that is elderhood. Amen. Hallelujah, brother. Now belonging. So do you happen to know, uh, Jerry, the legendary executive, um, Jim Fielding, he's got a new book out called, um, uh, all pride, no ego. And it's, I, I forget the exact subtitle, but it's something like a, a queer uh, executive's journey through blah, blah, whatever, you know. Anyway, I fell in love with the guy. He's an unbelievable guy. He was the CEO of Disney stores. He worked for Eisner. Mm. He worked, he grew up with Mickey Drexler. I he mean, survived Eisner. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and Katzenberg and all the, I mean, he, you know, unbel right. uh, as great a career as you can have as an executive and CEO. 
mm-hmm. and he's written this wonderful book. And we had a very powerful conversation about all of it, about mm-hmm. where we are in the, our world and our country with queer people and DEI mm-hmm. and you name it. Mm-hmm. And um, um, he shared with me, we were, we were talking about DEI in particular, he was sharing with me, he does, he sort of does some consulting and, you know, he's not, mm-hmm. he's sort of plus or minus where I think maybe you and I are, which is, yeah, we work, but mm-hmm. there's a difference between what you and I do and an entrepreneur or the CEO of a <laughs> major corporation does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we work, but mm-hmm. it's different. Anyway. And, um, and so he said one of his clients renamed their DEI function or group, mm-hmm. the belonging group. Yeah. Yeah. And that stopped me in my tracks because while there's plenty positive about DEI and my sense is it was started from a very good place and there still is much good about it. There's also some not good about it. Uh, And in certain places it's metastasized and in certain places, in my opinion, um, it's become the machine that it said it raged against, which is always a weird thing, but Mm. um I want to go back to this belonging and how you think it, what it, what it means in the corporate world. What does it mean in the context of DEI? What does it mean in the context of leadership? Mm. Well, I can tell you how I'm using it um, in, in the new book and in the work that I do now. And in response to this question, um, I think that, Programs that have fallen under the rubric of DEI, like efforts that have fallen under the rubric of, let's call it immigration reform or immigration policy, like other efforts, uh, there's some brokenness, there's some effectiveness, and there's some ineffectiveness. When we elevate the term belonging, what we're doing is fixating and focusing on what the point of it is from the beginning. Which, and this is quite normal behavior on the part of humans, we can get lost, especially when we use acronyms. We stop talking about people. And in a sense, it's a reminder that the point of it all is to create to create the opportunity within our organizations and within our communities where people can feel that same sense of love and safety that you and your friend feel in each other's relationship i like to imagine i like to stand in that tragic gap and imagine the world that could be, and imagining a world in which every one of our employees felt down to their bones that they belonged within that organization. And I'd like to imagine what kind of magic can get created in organizations when that starts to happen. So that's a long-winded response to your question, but um, I think that 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 trend 
And there is something of a trend right now of, of elevating that term is really a good positive trend because it's reminding us what was the point of all this in the first in place. In the first place. Yeah. Because belonging, and I know I can go here with you because you're you. <laughs> mm. Belonging in some ways is a softer way of saying love, is it not? Yeah, I, I think so. But I, but I actually, I think it's love plus safety. Right. 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 Because without safety, there is no belonging. Yes. And the truth is, yes. you know, yes, you're right. This is an expression of love and they do go together. But if, if we change the terminology for a moment and there's, there's, you know, I mean, we're living in a time where, you know, Eminem Mars is getting attacked because of its marketing choices about M&Ms. I mean, what, or beer cans are getting shot at because of a, campaign on was it TikTok or whatever i mean this is insane but if we take a step back and we said do you want your employees to feel safe i mean i i think it's a very hard heart a hardened heart of a business leader to say no i don't want my employees to feel safe do you want your neighbors to feel safe do you want your children to feel safe. Let's just start with that basics. And, and if we can aim for belonging, the result oftentimes is safety. Building upon that safety, adding love, creates that promised land of belonging. Yes. And it has been my life experience, Jerry, and I can say this like a question to you, but that a relationship can't take flight, can't become the deeply meaningful thing that it could could become without that. And I'll, I'll, I got a fun story for you on this one because it, 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 it really hit it for me. And I play this story in my head all the time. So I, like most people, have, you know, connected friend groups that, Mm-hmm. And and some of them overlap and some of them less overlap, but you know, in, we run in different circles, right? So there's a particular circle that I run in that has guys and gals in it, people who've known each other for a long time, got connected through work, and then friends and da 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 da. Anyway, and like most groups, there's a few of us in the group who uh, are a little more of a pain in the ass than some of the others in the group. And there was a situation that took place in the last I don't know nine months or so where there was a particular individual in this particular group who was kind of always a bit of a pain in the ass and was for whatever reason feeling to many in the others group in the group that the pain in the assness was increasing. And so as mm. invariably will happen in a situation like this, somebody in the group says, well, and of course they don't quite put it this way, but essentially what they say is, is it time to vote so-and-so off the Island? Mm. And then my buddy flip, who's a, uh, philosopher in his own way says we're not voting so-and-so off the island so-and-so's our pain in the ass we've -hmm. known so-and-so for over 20 something years if we were going to vote so-and-so off the island we were going to do that a long time ago 
We ain't doing that now. We're in our fucking 50s. Nobody's getting voted off the island. That that mm. ship has sailed. We're all in this together. So if we need to talk to so-and-so, that's fine. But make no mistake, nobody's fucking going anywhere. We're all in this together. Mm. Well, I, I love that story because what you're really getting at is, I mean, if we were to broaden that to the state of the country right now, we're not sending, we're not, we're not going to descend into civil war. We're not going to vote half the population off the island. We have a moral responsibility to find a way to get along. Say more about that. Well, because if we don't, what, how are we going to look our descendants in the eyes? How are we going to live up to the world as it's supposed to be? What are we going to do? We've already lived through a civil war, and it's still in our bones right now. And who gets served? Who, is, who benefits from people being at each other's throats? Who benefits when babies are being killed? You know, let's talk about the southern border of the United States for a moment, okay? I want to stipulate that our immigration policy is broken. And the truth is, Christopher, it's been broken for our entire adulthood, People like me who have something of a memory will remember an infamous group of senators called the Gang of Eight who came together with a bipartisan effort that failed to get passed. So now we have razor wire in the water of the Rio Grande. And I imagine bits of flesh cut in the razor wire. This is not the world I want to live in. We have to fix this. And we're not going to fix this by voting people off the island. Yes. Because ultimately we will have civil dialogue or civil war. This right? Is, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, choice. it's that simple. And at oh, the, the end blue of the day, people it's hate the choice. red people so much. Let's go kill the red people, or the red people hell, hell, hate the blue people so much. Let's go. Really? That's what we're going to fucking do? What? What about those of us who aren't red or blue? Right. Who benefits when we point guns at each other? It's neither side benefits. So who's benefiting? The status quo. Well, and the people who can monetize hate. And the people who monetize hate. Yes. Okay. And, and, and all of our elders, you've got Leonard Cohen over your shoulder. Leonard Cohen is an elder. Yes. God bless Leonard okay. Cohen. I mean, we are better than this, not because we're American, but because we're human. Yes. Yes. Because we have the capacity to be empathetic. We have a capacity for compassion. 
we have elders who for millennia have shown us different ways of being. Yes. We have a moral responsibility to listen to our elders. Yes. And te- especially when they tell us, stop being, to quote you, stop being a douchebag. Yeah, stop being a fucking douchebag. Wake up, pay attention. <laughs> we, can all, we can all get a little lost and a little stupid. And in, in culture, in business, there's a false choice that's emerged which is I can have a cuddle cuddle West Coasty wear Birkenstocks and and, and tie dye shit and we're all gonna get together in a sweat lodge at the beginning of the week and you know all this sort of shit right this sort of very kind of mm-hmm. and and everybody gets a cookie and there's we keep no score and everybody gets free avo toast at the office and all that sort of shit if you ever been to the Facebook or Google or Microsoft mm-hmm. campuses they're like fucking Disney worlds for work mm-hmm. and you just go, what the fuck's going on here? And, and so there's this radical cuddling, the cuddling of, of America, what George Carlin called the pussification of America. And then the other is this performance culture. Hey, up or out, produce results or get mm-hmm. the fuck out, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how do the, how does the dichotomy between those and the false mm-hmm. choice and the space between those choices, how, how do you think mm. about those things? Or said in a simpler way, maybe, Jerry, how do I create a radically empathetic belonging culture in my organization? And at the same mm. time, hey, produce results because you can't pay the rent and you can't buy groceries with social media likes and friends. Mm. So, so I, I, I immediately started smiling when you, when you called it a fa- false dichotomy. Because I think that that's the first clue to the answer. The dichotomy is false. And this is really, really important. Look, uh, when I was an adult, a young adult and, and a young father, I worked for a company that had on-site daycare. Every year, year after year, the company was placed in the 100 best companies in America to work for because we had an on-site daycare. And I was one of the first fathers to take advantage of it. And then I was the first father to take advantage of it with two children in the daycare program. And I will tell you that that experience of being able to have lunch with my toddlers every single day made me a better employee. Okay. We know these things are true. And yet a lot of what we have allowed to to be created is this weird sense of a perquisite culture where you're supposed to have chefs and all this stuff. Okay. Is it excessive? Is it broken? Yeah. But I think what you're really asking is how do you reconcile what feels like a dichotomy? And there's a simple image I would give. And you also, Chris. frankly, to put it simply, how do you make sure that people do their fucking job and produce results and understand that? Well, because the, 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 the problem with the question is that you presume that holding people accountable is somehow not creating a culture of belonging. And that's wrong. Look. But here's this is where people go. It. This is, exa- we, we, hey, man, I want to be coddled and cuddled and, 
you know, I got a hangnail. Yeah, I, I, so. I, I, the, the, the truth of the matter is, Christopher, I, I don't think that's where people go. I think that's where a, a small minority of people go. And those people are going to go to that place regardless. The vast majority of people want to do good work and they want to work hard and they want to enjoy themselves and they want to be treated like adults. But I'm going to give you a metaphor to resolve this. Um, and I'm going to hold up a cup, okay? And the way I think about it is, and yes, the cup says the badass division. Okay. Um, and Funnily what I'm going to say- I have a badass division cup too. Mine just says Ramones on it. Ramones. All right. <laughs> okay. So when you think of a cup, think of it as a container. Okay. A container that is empty and has no content is meaningless. But- Content without a container is useless. So this dichotomy, as you call it, between a strong, uh, healthy, financially healthy, sound uh, organization with good results and with a thoughtful approach to, say, profitability is a good container. But if that's all that you focus on, then what you've built is a meaningless shell of an organization. And similarly, if all you focus on is the content without worrying about how the content of what you create is going to be distributed, delivered, generate revenue, then it's ultimately useless. And what I always say is bringing those two things together putting them in sync with each other, that is hard. Of course it's hard. But hard work is worth it. Hard work produces its own reward. Imagine building healthy, profitable, fiscally sound organizations that can pay their bills and pay their employees a good wage and give their employees health care and it's not run by a bunch of dicks who take advantage of people. Imagine you can have both. And, and this is why I love your work. You can't be successful without both. That's right. What you just did, Christopher, is you changed the tr definition of success. And that's really key here. Well, you what's the point of a company if everybody hates working there? That's it. And what's the point of a company if all your customers hate you? And what's the point? And how Hopefully long will you be in Comcast business? Comcast might listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now you're talking about monopolies. Totally different <laughs> issue. <laughs> but, 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 you know, the whole point of the endeavor is to do great work in a way that is psychologically safe and fulfilling. Yes. And here's the mind fuck. And this is why I love what mm. you do. Accountability, results, outcome, and transparency are a powerful way to get there. Because every yes. legendary leader I know who is empathetic, who is a human being, is also not confused. We're in business. 
right? We're here to make shit. We're here to make a difference for customers. We're here to deliver real value. We're here to produce results for stakeholders. Um, We're here to produce a tomorrow. Correct. If you don't produce profit profits, there is no tomorrow. There is no tomorrow. There, uh, there is no the, revenue the, the and container profits has, are a, has a hole in the bottom of it. That's right. That's right. And and the the false choice that what empathy is like at work is daycare, avo toast, and as much time you want off, and you don't have to do anything because you belong here, so you can just you know, as we used to say in Silicon Valley, rest and vest. We have empathy when we have accountability. But it, but even using your example, resting and vesting is a pejorative term for a toxic work culture. It's just toxic in a different way. It's 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 it described it came into being to describe people who had given up caring. Okay, that is not a healthy culture. Right? Yes. And that is not a consequence of people feeling like they belong. In fact, I would argue that the more people feel like they belong, the harder they will work. Because <laughs> now they we're getting give a somewhere, damn. Jerry. Well, they give a damn. Right. Right? The, the, the more people feel like they're part of something larger than themselves, whether it's in our businesses or in our societies, the more that they will care. They will pick up the litter in the streets. They will make sure that children go to school. They will take care of the community. But when you remove that sense of being a part of a long, larger group, you remove the very thing that motivates people yes. to live above and beyond themselves. Yes. Legendarily said. I guess the question is, and, and or not even a question, but the observation I'd make is, the way out of the dichotomy is to stop seeing it as a dichotomy, but to see two parts of a whole. You know, you called it, that's the definition of success. I would say that's the definition of leadership. Yes. Yeah, it's hard, but and it's worth it. I know you do. I see modern leaders doing that today. I do too. I see a lot of them. I see uh, women and men of our generation doing this, having radically performant, radically empathetic, uh, huge mission-driven, huge sense of belonging and teamwork and satisfaction, um, and a big focus on growth or a big focus on profitability and a big focus on customers. Um, these things all working in concert in a virtuous circle as opposed mm -hmm. to being thought of as two extremes that don't really connect. And I see, and here's the other thing. The next generation of leaders, to get back to elders, mm -hmm. the millennials mm -hmm. and Gen Z. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm seeing incredible leadership there. I'm seeing 35-year-old people, 30-year-old people who you go, that person is going to be a monster CEO. Mm -hmm. I'm working with a 25-year-old uh, female entrepreneur right now who is lighting things. On. I mean, she is unbelievable. 
and she's got all these people around, incredible things. And so the fascinating thing to me is we grew up in an era where business leaders were these sort of Darth Vader-y kind of characters. And mm-hmm. they, mm-hmm. They, they, they loved internal competition. Sometimes they put two people in a box to see who comes out on top and all of this, mm-hmm. all that shit that we grew up with, right? And, and, Jack and Walsh. The, this, this new generation of leadership is somehow combining radical humanity with a radical focus on, on results. Mm-hmm. I, uh, uh, yes. And I think back to my youth as a reporter for a technology magazine. And I remember covering a, co- a company that was based out of Minneapolis called Control Data Corporation. It went by back the when they were one of the leaders. That's right. That's right. And Bill Norris was a, was a tough guy. He founded that company. He grew up, I remember him telling me a story where, you know, he saved the family farm by feeding his cattle thistles, which everybody was convinced the cattle wouldn't eat. Well, there was no hay because of the dust bowl. So they ate thistles and he saved the, saved the farm. You know, he was a tough as nails CEO. But he was one of the people who said to me, you know, I asked him one time about why, why did they place um, uh, factories in places like St. Paul, Minnesota, or East New York, Brooklyn. And he said, after the riots, after the Watts riots, he had a meeting with the head of the NAACP who said to him, you can't do business in communities that are burning. We have communities that are burning. And I think that there is a responsibility. You can do both. You can walk and chew gum at the same time. You can both create a profitable business that treats people well, that contributes meaningfully to a better world. We have plenty of examples of this over the decades. It's the false narrative is that you have to choose between these two. And the result of that is deadly. Jerry, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? No, just what a pleasure it is to hang out with my fellow business philosopher. Because <laughs> uh, we can go everywhere, can't we? Yes, we sure can, Jerry. I, I, I have no concern about a conversation with you and... Um, how riveting it's going to be for me. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. The feeling is mutual for sure. And thank you for your work. Thank you for your new book. Um, and uh, hey, man, you don't have to have a new book coming out <laughs> to, for us to have a conversation. <laughs> so you're, you're welcome back anytime, Jerry. Well, I appreciate that. And, and thank you for the show and thank you for what you do. It's, uh, it's always a pleasure. And, I, and I'll be back sooner. Thank you, brother. Well, there he is, the legendary Jerry Colonna. His new book is called Reunion, Leadership and the Longing to Belong. Pick up your copy wherever you pick up legendary books. And um, we really appreciate your word of mouth. Word of mouth is, was, and always will be the greatest form of marketing. And digital word of mouth has the ability to scale tremendously. So if you enjoyed this conversation with Jerry, why not post it to your social media feed right now? And there's a share option in the uh, podcast player you're listening to that you could hit right now 
and send it to uh, 200 of your closest friends who you think would also love Jerry. All right, we would like to thank, we'd like to thank you. Thank you so much for your time and attention. It means the world to all of us here. Don't forget our friends at Clary.com. In good times and in bad, every drop of revenue matters. C-L-A-R-I.com. Get your whole company collaborating and governing on the most important thing in business, revenue. Our friends at the American Wild Horse Campaign are the leading voice on protecting wild mustangs and burros. Visit AmericanWildHorseCampaign.org to learn more about how you can stop the cruel treatment of some of America's most beautiful and majestic wild animals. WildHorseCampaign.com And if you're in B2B tech, our friends at Autranet will help you do a rapid relaunch of your website. Remember, your, your website is the first thing that people see. And you can only make one first impression. Go to atre.net, that's atre.net, and get a legendary website for your B2B tech company today. All right, I need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. I also must warn you that um, the host of this oddcast doesn't have a GED, and uh, The Economist once called me off-putting to some. This oddcast contains content known to the state of California to cause radically non-obvious thinking, new categories, and exponential outcomes. Also, all oddcasts do contain nuts. Please contact your doctor, lawyer, shaman, accountant, yoga instructor, bartender, bud tender, and category designer before doing anything about anything you heard today. Never forget, everything is the way that it is because somebody like you changed the way that it was. Also, I just uh, heard this recently. Did you know that most people can't kiss their elbow? And in Switzerland, it is illegal to own just one guinea pig. Because the Swiss government doesn't want guinea pigs to be lonely, you gotta own two or more. We're produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. It's one of my absolute top podcasts. If you're in the tech industry, or if you're just a little bit grumpy uh, and you want to chuckle, check out Grumpy Old Geeks, wherever you get your legendary podcasts. Uh, Sarah Knox and Jamie J do our technical execution around here, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon. The Bobus Brothers, EX and RJ, do our web development. Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack, and our accounts are three balance sheets to the wind. We record these oddcasts on squadcast.fm. Gordon Lightfoot was right. Listen to the Tragically Hip. Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Sam Bankman Fraud. Sorry, Sammy. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different.